I'm really surprised to see everybody here tonight. I guess the wind was kind of blowing this way, and people thought it was easier and to go with the wind, but wait till you hit the headwind coming home. I think uh, due to the headwind, we're just going to kind of fellowship here tonight. Yeah. We're not going to leave tonight. We're just going to stay here. So if you guys want to hang out afterwards and continue to fellowship, um, that's what we're going to do. You're dismissed. No. Just starting. My name is Andy. I work here at the church with Tanner. And um, also uh, a full-time student at MSU, finishing up a degree at Montana Bible College. Um, we've been going through a series uh, looking at the life of Christ. He who says he abides in him ought to walk just as he walked. To abide means to be at home, to be comfortable to that feeling like when you're going to go home for Thanksgiving and you're around what's comfortable, your home. If you say you're at home and you abide and you love Christ, you ought to walk just like Him, Scripture says. Um, we're going to be looking at the, a different angle of walking as Christ walked and twist it a little bit to say walk after Christ. To, to walk, to follow after Christ is to worship Christ, okay? To follow after Christ is to worship Christ, and to worship Christ is to worship Christ alone. You're going to hear that a few times this evening. I'm going to say that again. To follow after Christ is to worship Christ, and to worship Christ is to worship Him alone. We're going to be looking at through the picture, the story of John 4, worship. That's a good topic. I think a lot of times we've taken this huge concept of worship and we've reduced it to a category of music. And it's so much more than that. So much more than that that you guys do it every day and a lot of times you don't even realize it. We're going to look at that this evening too. But if we're going to understand worship... I think it's very appropriate to start out with prayer. And if we're going to understand the word worship, um, the word means to do this. What we're going to do is we're going to kneel, and we're going to start out in prayer this evening. So let's go ahead and get on our, get, get on our knees. When's the last time you were on your knees praying? And ask the Lord to guide us. Heavenly Father, we are coming to your word this evening because we want to know you. And Lord, to truly know you is to worship you above any other God. That's what you told us in the Old Testament, and that's what you revealed to us in the New Testament, and that's what you call each of us to do. Lord, I appreciate Nate's words. We are very prideful people, and we, we worship so many things that just pop up. Lord, I pray that as we get to know you through your word this evening, we would love you more deeply and we would worship you more truly, Lord. Convict us of our, of our pride, Lord, and our selfishness and all these sins that so easily entangle us. Set our eyes on you. Amen. When's the last time you were on your knees praying? It's a little different, isn't it? 
Let's turn to um, 1 John 4. We're going to spend a lot of our time there this evening. We're going to jump around to a lot of other scriptures too. But the whole evening, keep your, keep your fingers in 1 John 4, 4.23. Oh, did I say 1 John? I meant just plain old John. Did you notice there it says true worshipers? It's interesting. It must mean that there is worship that is not true. And that there are worshipers that are not of the truth. We're going to be looking at worship over two weeks. This week and then Thanksgiving we're going to take off. And then the next week we're going to pick up the last half of this. Um, the, part, the section after Tanner read. This evening though, we've introduced the topic of worship. What does worship mean? Literally, it means to, to bow the knee, to kiss the hand, to pay homage to something, to see something as greater than yourself, and I, I want that. That's what I want. I'm willing to, to give up something for that. That's what a true worshiper should... That's, that's the posture of our hearts. Like kneeling like we just did. That should be the posture of your heart before the Lord. You are worthy. I want I want you, Lord. True worship. Now, we worship all kinds of things. Um, John Calvin said that uh, the heart is an idle factory. It, it just comes up. And if it's not true worship, Scripture calls it, idolatry. It's idol worship. It's lowercase g worship. Um, and we come up with this stuff so easy. Uh, this morning, my wife texted me. I was telling Tanner about this. And uh, Rhett wants to go, my son's name is Rhett, and he wants to go to some uh, thing that kids do in some place and they learn about dinosaurs. He's excited. That's very detailed, I know. And, um, but his room was a mess, and he did not want to clean it. Didn't want to clean it. So um, mom says, well, if you don't clean your room, Rhett, uh, you're not going to go to learn about these dinosaurs. So Jen texts me. I'm in psychology, and she texts me this. And I started laughing. And Rhett goes, this is going to be a paraphrase because I forget. He goes, mom, I feel just like. The Hebrews did working under Pharaoh. <laughs> and she texted me this. And I'm like, man, that kid's got his theology down. He's, he's got some good instructors. That'll be on Facebook, I guarantee it. My wife, she's like... <laughs> she's on Facebook fast. Rhett's, Rhett's a worshiper. Nice sound effects. <laughs> and... Uh, Rhett's a worshiper. What's he worshiping? The idol of I don't want to work. I'll do anything if I don't have to work. I just, wanna, I just want everything to be handed to me. What, what do single guys worship? What do single guys worship? Here's, here's a, they do. I had one in my mind. Donuts. But <laughs> It's kind of a funny story. Um, I was living with three other guys, and I love cheesecake. And uh, Ben, one of the fellas I lived with, he made his first cheesecake, 
and it was like he got a spring pan. It was like thick. And I love cheesecake, and I didn't have much cheesecake growing up because they were expensive. But now my wife makes cheesecake like for my birthday and stuff. She'll say, what kind of cheesecake do you want? And I'll say, turtle, and, or whatever kind of cheesecake I have in my mind because I love turtle cheesecake. And uh, so Ben made this cheesecake in a house of four single guys, and he would not let anybody eat it. It was hit, and when his girlfriend came over, they would have like a slice, and they, they would do the C.S. Lewis thing, you know, eating cheesecake. If you were here last week, you'll get that. Um, so me and Mike, what we, we were having cheesecake covet, because che- <laughs> cheesecake is, uh, we, I love cheesecake. And so I would go into the, um, the refrigerator, and I'd cut tiny slices, <laughs> ones that I didn't think he'd notice. And slowly, I, like, I had to back off because he was starting to accuse us of somebody stealing his cheesecake. <laughs> but we come up with these things that we set our heart and our affection on, and they're stupid things. In this case, it was food, cheesecake. <laughs> so that's a, that's a key to you ladies if you want to get to the, the heart of a man. It's just through his stomach. Cheesecake. Girls, what do you worship? Chocolate? I don't know. We're born that way. We are born with this propensity to look at something and say, I want that. That will bring me satisfaction. My youngest son, son Jack, he worships control. He's so different than Rhett. Rhett's kind of compliant. Jack, he wants control. And if control, he, has, he worships the God of, I want the control. And if he doesn't get it, man, he throws a fit. I mean, and he has this, this piercing yell that he, he'll do anything to get what he wants. We wrestle with these different idols, the things that we think will bring us satisfaction. We worship them. We say, that's what I, I need to have that. I'm not happy unless I have that. It's not true worship, but it is a form of worship. Our hearts are idol factories. Um, what's the problem with this? Nothing wrong with cheesecake, is there? No, nothing wrong with that. But when we start to think that this is going to bring me happiness, man, we've got our priorities really wrong. The Old Testament, God says, you should have no other God before me. Nothing comes before me. Nothing makes you happy like I will. Let's read um, a couple problems with false idols, or with idols. Jeremiah 2.13. God says, you've committed two evils. First, You've turned away from me. Second, you make yourselves these pots. Okay? And you say, look at this pot. I'm, gonna, I'm going to pour water into it. And, and water is, is life-giving. But God says, your pots are cracked. They may look pretty, but they're worthless. They won't hold water. And so imagine taking out a couple of these pots and you... You put it on your camel, you fill it up with water, and you go out into the desert, and you think, I'm fine. I am just fine. I've got all these things filled with water. And then after a couple days, you get, you've been drinking some, 
You look back and your pots are totally empty. And that's what, that's what false idols do. You put your hope in something other than God. You turn from God and you say, you see this? This is going to make me happy. And God says, you have it. it's a cracked pot. It isn't even worth anything. And that's exactly what happens. We put our, our hope in things and they're not even worth anything. The iPhone 4 is already outdated. Can you believe that? You think, just like that, it's gone. It's a cracked pot. I saw somebody shaking his head in disgust. <laughs> Psalms 115, the second reason why this is a problem. God really reveals the idiocy of idol worship. His people set up the golden calves, or they set up these different gods to Moloch, and they have hands and feet, but they don't do anything. They're good for nothing. God says, you, you make an idol out of a stump of wood. And on one hand, you, you burn firewood, and you keep it warm, and you throw it in the trash. And on the, other hand of the, on the other end of the stump, you make an idol, and you say, thank you so much for providing for me. makes no sense at all. That's what, I, that, that's what false worship does. Is it, it makes putting your hope and your trust in something that is not, can't give hope, isn't trustworthy, you become like it and you become a slave to it. Um, let's go to Romans 11.36. For of him, who? God. And through him, who? God. And to him, are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. For of him, all things are of him, and through him, all things are through God, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. You see, you have a created purpose. A lot of people want to know, what's, what am I created for? You're created to worship your creator. But there's something about humans that we just desire to be in awe of something, to look for satisfaction in something. And God says, what you're looking for is for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. The same thing is found in Colossians 1, if you want to read it on your own. We're made for a purpose, and that is to give glory and to worship our Creator. And those who don't do that, it's, they're, they're looking into cracked pots. False hope leaves them empty. You know, uh, there's a good quote I, I read by G.K. Beale. It says, What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What you revere, you will eventually resemble. And it will either be for ruin or restoration. I think of my own life sometimes and how easily I'm swayed, how easily I, there's things I want to worship other than God. That how easily I say, man, I wish I could have that. And I think about it. And I, I wrote this last week. The, more, the longer I've become a Christian, the more that I am amazed at God's grace 
Grace is unmerited favor. Here's Andy, who at the little something flashy, like a raccoon, runs after it, and then I'm over here. But yet God's grace is so amazing. The story we're going to read tonight of John 4, there's a couple things I want you to see in it. The first thing is that I want you to be amazed at God's grace, His unmerited favor, undeserved attention. The Father is seeking. You should underline that in your Bible. That is evidence of grace. The Father is seeking. The word seeking, it means to, to take aim at, to go after something because you want it. Tomorrow morning, Lord willing, if it doesn't snow too much, I'm going to go up and I'm going to go hunting. And uh, the whole hunt, you get up so early and you pack your lunch and you prepare and you drive an hour and it comes down to one shot with a rifle. And you take aim at something. And this is what God does. He doesn't use a a shotgun. It's not a approach. It's a, I want that. I want him. I want her. And I'm going to seek them. And it says God is seeking. It's a rifle approach. It's a determined, a, a patient, slow determination to have you in his sovereignty. The the second thing I want you to see first is God's amazing grace in this story. The second thing I want you to see in this story, why I love this story, is we get scared off by words like doctrine, the doctrine of salvation. Reading John 4, Jesus is the doctrine of salvation. He doesn't explain it to you. He is it. He becomes the doctrine of salvation, and he uses the canvas of his own life to illustrate what exactly salvation is. And the more you read it, the more you cannot believe how vast, how amazing salvation is, how great God's grace is. That's the second thing I want you to see in the story. The third thing is 1 John 2.6. I want you to look at Christ and say, Do I live my life like that? Am I a Christian like he is Christ? Am I a little Christ? Because he does things so opposite of how we would. I mean, we have these tendencies and these knee-jerk reactions, and that this just seems right, and Christ doesn't do that. You're going to see how he does something totally opposite. Learn from him. Learn from him as you also encourage each other and as you witness to each other. Okay, let's go to the story. John. John 4. The first section we're going to read is 4, 1 through 9. Here we go. Give you a second to turn there. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and disciples uh, made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Okay, underline this verse. This is good. But he needed to go through Samaria. Man, don't skip over that. That's awesome. Verse 5. So he came to 
So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Joseph, that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob wells there, and Jesus, therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to, to, to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. I'm going to stop there for a second. Okay, just to give you some context of what's going on and why I love verse 4. He needed to go through Samaria. Chapter 3, we were looking at Nicodemus. He's in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. He is at the, the center of Jewish awesomeness. The temple, it's the jewel of Jerusalem. It's the, the, the apple of the Jews' eye. They love the temple. And not only that, he has guys like Nicodemus, who is one of the lead teachers, questioning him about salvation. It was an interesting conversation. And then it says in verse 1 that the Pharisees are taking note that many people are being baptized by Jesus. That's a good thing, right? And while all this stuff is going on good, and, and Christ is making his name known, and people are becoming baptized, and they're repenting, it says in verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. He just leaves. He just, he just walks out the door, and he walks to Samaria, and, and Nobody needed to go through Samaria. No, nobody even wanted to go through Samaria. We're going to look at this, this a little bit later. I love that verse, though. He needed to go through Samaria. Something came into his mind, Christ's mind, that is so opposite of my mind. Because here's how I think. I think, man, we got a lot of people here tonight. That's awesome. Christ, what did you think? Oh, there was one person there tonight. It was awesome. Imagine tomorrow, got a big game. Big game's going on. MSU's winning. And all of a sudden, the coach is like, I got to go, guys. And what's, the, what's like one of the dorms that nobody enjoys? Is there one like that? I've never been in one. Langford? You said it. And, <laughs> He runs over to Langford, and all of a sudden, he's just hanging out by the water fountain. (laughs) Waiting. Waiting for one person. And you think, what are you doing? That's what Jesus did. Everything, life is going on. The disciples are being obedient. They're following Christ. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, I need to go to Samaria, guys. And he takes off. And then he he gets to this well. In the middle of the day, he sends his disciples off, and he sits down. Do you find that at all ironic? Do you find that all weird to you? Like, things are happening, and all of a sudden Jesus is like, come on, let's go. All right, go get some food. <laughs> and in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, he just sits down. Man, some, something's going on. Sure enough, something comes along. Comes along a woman. It says that uh, they introduce her as... Then um, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. 
they give you a little bit of introduction about this lady. First of all, and you've got to compare, think of the irony of chapter 3. Jesus had just talked to, and in this culture, men and women, there was a big gender difference. He spent his time with a man. Now he's with a woman. Huh. He's Jews, uh, to Jews, that would have raised eyebrows, not to Jesus. Okay. Nicodemus was a leader. He was a teacher. He had influence. He was influential. Samaritan woman, no influence. In fact, she was a woman who bore a lot of shame. Do you notice it says in the sixth hour? Nobody came at the sixth hour. And nobody came by themselves. Women came together. They came, they helped each other. She came by herself. She's got baggage. She doesn't want to be around people. Nicodemus, he was around, he, he worked with people daily. Two totally different people. And Christ wants, and he is seeking. He is aimed at this woman, and he will have her for a true worshiper. And you're going to see through this story, he keeps aiming at her heart, and she keeps, she, three times she diverts, and he, he ignores it, and he goes right for her, and then she diverts, and he ignores He's purposeful. He had to go through Samaria. Something's on his mind. He's seeking, just like the Father said. Okay? This is what, this is what Jesus says. He says, um, give me a drink. And he's not just being lazy here. He's being purposeful. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For don't you know, sir, Jews have absolutely no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus asks her for a drink, and she says, wait a second. You know very well that your people and my people don't get along. Jesus says, can I get a drink from you? Do you know the history behind this? There's a lot of hate here. Have you ever met people like this? That um, you don't even know them, but they already have something against you. Or maybe you don't even know them and you already have something against, you already have something against them. That's how we get. We're we're so silly like this. Um, I grew up near the Mason-Dixon line. And old hate is just everywhere. People flying their rebel flags. Stupid. I was, on the plane, I was on a plane one time, and I sat down by a lady who was an African-American, and I had never met her in my life. She reamed me out. And I tried. I was talking to her and she, and, uh, three times. And uh, each time, she just totally stiff-armed me. She had a lot of hate built up inside because there was a history there. And she didn't care that Andy, who Andy was, that there's a boundary that we're not going to cross. I love looking at Jesus because he's such an example of how to break down these barriers. I thought it would be different. I thought it was interesting. I came to Montana. 
And, and we have our own prejudices out here. Isn't that strange? I went down to, uh, I went down south to Texas to buy a truck last year. Man, they have their own prejudices down there. There's so many barriers that we as humans build up because of hate. And Jesus will not let these barriers come between the gospel. He just ignores them. He has ways of breaking down these walls. And he says, will you give me a drink? See, here's the history. Israel was divided up northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was care. Most of them, the best of the best, were carried away by the Assyrians. Some of them were left back. Now, if you were a king and you wanted to dominate an area, here's what you'd do. You would send men, you'd send people of your own or of uh, somebody that you were over, and you would send them back into that country, into that town. Why would you do that? Because... Once you take these people, you bring them into that town, you start getting married, the laws start changing, they start believing different things, they, they lose their originality, and that's what happened to the Jews. They intermarried with other countries. Now, this was against Jewish law. God said, I am setting aside this people. You don't go out and marry other cities. Why? Because if you do, you'll bring in their gods and you won't serve me alone. And this is what happened. And so now this new race of people were called Samaritans. And like God said, this is what happened. They brought in the gods with them and they, they were some of the worst gods. They, there was a god to fertility. The god of Moloch was one of the gods that the Samaritans brought in, and they worshipped him. And pretty much it was a god, huge golden god with arms, that they would heat up these arms to red hot, and they'd melt their babies down on the god of Moloch. Why? So that they'd have crops in the winter, in the next summer, next spring. So then, after a period of this went on, um... They turned away from their, these false gods, and they started to turn back to the one true God, but they only accepted, the Samaritans, they wouldn't accept Scripture in its entirety. They would only take the first four books. This is all the ones they would take. They put up their own temple in Mount Gerizim, and then after a time, remember all those Jews who were in captivity to the Assyrians? Well, they're released. And under Ezra, Nehemiah, they come home to find what their people and their families had been going on. You see the tension building up? We were captured, and while you were away, you were sleeping with the enemy, and look what you've done. Well, even though they had turned from their gods and they, had, they didn't fully um, obey all of Scripture, they go over to the Jews who had just returned from captivity under Ezra and Nehemiah, and they offer them help. Hey, could we help build your temple? And you can read in Ezra, the Jews are like, there is no way you are helping us. 
after, after what you've done. In fact, the Jews in the inter-New Testament period go over and they tear down the Samaritan's temple. Do you see? <laughs> it's very tentious. This is the, the history that when the Jews and the Samaritans mixed, it was, it was in their blood. It was in the back of their mind. And don't you know, Jesus, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? The word Samaritan had become a swear word. Remember what they called Jesus? And I think it's John 8. They said, look at Jesus. He's got a demon and he's a Samaritan. That's what we do. We, we start to cut each other down with these. It was just a slur. It used the Samaritan word, the name of the Samaritan. And they, they, it had become like a swear word. Um, Jews avoided Samaria. At all costs, even though if you wanted to go from southern Jerusalem to southern Israel to northern Israel, and Samaria was in the center, the Jews would go the whole way around. If you went into Samaria, you were unclean. And the word dealings with says, "Don't you know, Jews have no dealings with." That means specifically, Jews don't touch utensils that belong to Samaritans. You, you don't. You don't drink after us. You don't use our plates. Don't you know that, Jesus? And Jesus goes up to this lady and he says, Can I get a drink from you? He is so purposeful. I love how he just ignores all of these arguments that we can get in. That's a good lesson for us as we reach out to people. Don't get involved with arguments. Jesus is seeking this woman. He is aimed at her, and he will have her as a true worshiper. Can I get a drink from you? Another thing we can learn from this. This is so cool. The Jews thought that if I touched what was the Samaritans, I would be get, become dirty. Not Jesus. What Jesus touches does not make him dirty. Rather, what Jesus touches that is dirty, he makes clean. Remember the dead, the dead person? Jews would never go near a dead person. Jesus did. You remember the, uh, the, the leper? There's no way the Jews would go near a leper. Jesus did. And every time he comes in contact, instead of getting dirty, Jesus makes them clean. You see, if you think you've gone too far, and this lady, if there was anybody who was unreachable, it was this lady. She had gone far. Sin had taken her far. Jesus says, no, you haven't gone too far. Not for my grace. Not when I'm seeking you. There is no one who has run too far for my grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. I will have you. I'm going to seek you out. And I love grace. Another thing. Um, people say, like, what about the countries who have never heard about the gospel? Verse 4. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Samaria was an unreached place, and it seemed unreachable. But when Christ and God is seeking, he will divide heaven and earth to bring the gospel there. There is no unreachable people groups. There's no unreachable people groups. There is nobody that is out of the reach of God. He will do whatever it takes. Is that your heart? Because in his sovereignty, he uses people like you. Do you, 
Are, are there people who you're not willing to associate with? You know, there's a greater gap than distance, and that is just hate, uh, personal differences. Man, Jesus totally lays those aside and says, I want this person. That's what I want to be like. I don't want to be on campus and there's somebody that I won't talk to because I don't understand them or they, they do this and I don't. And man, I don't want to be like that at all. I don't see that in Jesus at all. There's no unreachable people groups. Do you love people like this? And you've got to ask yourself, why? Why is he like this? It's because he is seeking and he is aiming at this woman's heart and he will not let anything get in the way of her becoming a true worshiper. Let's keep reading. John 4.10. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would, ask, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You notice what Jesus does? He just ignored her. She, say, she says, Wait a second. Me and, you, me and you people, we, we don't mix. And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I was and who it is who asked you a drink, you would, you would ask me for a drink. He doesn't get caught up in these little tangents. He's seeking her. And he says, if you only knew who I was, he would have given you living water. Living water. It means what it sounds like. Water that is living. Water that will fill you up. Water that will satisfy. Water that won't run dry. And we look for this kind of thing in so many places that we think is living water. Christ says, I'm the source. If you only knew the gift of God... The source, is, uh, the source of satisfaction is only found in Christ. Um, John 10.10 10 says, The thief does not come to steal and to destroy. The thief does not come to, except to steal and destroy. I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. Abundant life. Do you know how you know a false worshiper? Or do you know how if you're worshiping what is not true, what's not living water? You never can get enough. You have to keep going back. This lady, her whole, all that she did was she would, every day, she would go back to the water and get more. This culture was built around water. Jesus is such an awesome illustrator, too. Water is so, I mean, we kind of take water for granted. You can turn on the spigot. There's water. Flush the toilet. There goes the water. Here comes some more water. But in this culture, man, water. Jacob's well. Here's Jacob's well. We're going to build a town around Jacob's well. If you don't have water, let me, let me put it this way. I, I was reading um, this survivalist thing. If you're underwater for three seconds, if you're out of air, you're dead. It's called rules of three. If you are in extreme climates like tonight with no shelter, you have three hours. If you don't have water, three days. Water is essential. You need water. 
And this lady had kept coming back for more water, kept coming back for more water, but she was never satisfied. And that's how it is. When we don't go to living water, it always runs out. If we don't go to the source, the true source, which is Jesus, it's not living water. Um, the woman said to him, oh, let me back up. Uh, when you talk, do you ever talk to a person about the Bible, talk to them about your testimony, talk to them about salvation or the gospel? And if, they're, if, if they've never heard it before, a lot of times they look at you and they're like, what? Um, do you remember what uh, the Jews said to Jesus? The Jews' eyes were so fixed on the temple. And Jesus is going to teach them about eternal things. And he says to them, and he's talking about um, uh, the resurrection. He says, tear this temple down, and in three days I'll build it up. And the Jews say, it took 47 years. They totally missed it. Nicodemus. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, uh, you mean I got to like enter back into my mom? What? Jesus totally missed it. Jesus says, you need living water. And the woman looks at Jesus and she goes, she couldn't see past the physical. She goes, but you don't even have a bucket. And the well's deep, Jesus. What, what are you going to do? Like she, She's still at AM and Jesus is FM. But Jesus doesn't get scrambled. He keeps seeking for her. She says to him in verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And then she says, who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? You see, Jesus said, if you knew, who, if you knew the gift of God and who it was, and she goes, who do you think you are? Do you think you're greater than the guy who dug this well? And besides, you don't got a bucket. I'm going to ask you for a drink? What are you talking about? She doesn't get it. Here's what Jesus does. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. Again, she tries to divert him, change the subject. She doesn't get it. Her eyes are on the earth. And Jesus, he doesn't argue with her. No, yes, actually I am greater than Jacob. I was before Jacob and Abraham. No, he just goes back to, I'm going to go for this lady's heart. I've come for this purpose, and I'm not going to get tangled up in all these sidetracked issues. And Jesus didn't, doesn't get offended. He talks about, he keeps talking about this living water. How do you know false worship? False worship in your own life, it, cries, it always cries for more. It's never enough. It's always a little bit more. You have an, an idol that you want and you finally get it, you're not satisfied. You finally get that thing. 
You're finally friends with that person. You finally go to that place, and you say, I'm here. (sighs) Now what? Not living water. It's not living water. It's a temporary fix. It's a functional savior. It functions for a little while, and then it leaves you. Jesus says, the water that I give you, it becomes a fountain within you. It, literally, it's a leaping fountain within you, and you'll never thirst again. Once you meet Christ, you don't say, okay, and now what? He is enough. He satisfies. He satisfies your soul. Salvation satisfies the soul. I'm around people all the time, and they have so many things but they're not satisfied. This woman was not satisfied, as you're going to find out in a couple of verses. She had a lot of things in some regard, but she was not satisfied. That's how false, false worship, idol worship is. And not only does it run out, but it leaves you Pathetic. Like that verse we read at the beginning in Psalms. You worship gods that don't have eyes and ears. They can't hear. They can't see. And they make, that, they make you as they are, deaf and dumb. That's false worship. Christ says, I give you living water, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. The cisterns that you have and you put your hope in, and it's stupid things like cars and grades and hobbies and careers, and you have this and you say, finally, I've got this. I have hope. And it always cries for more time, more energy, more of you. It's not living water. Psalm 63, 3 says, O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. The salvation that satisfies the soul, Jesus is living water, David says, your loving kindness is better than life. Man, that's hard if you don't know Christ to understand that your perspective is no longer earthbound, but it's an eternal perspective. The love of God is better than life itself. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient. It's enough for you. It's all that you need. You don't have to look anyplace else. It satisfies It's sufficient for you. And then at last, at last, at the very end here, the moment we've all been waiting for, Christ has been aiming for this woman's heart, and she diverts, and he aims for her heart, and she diverts. And the third time, and then finally, she says, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to drink. And I think what a bunch of us would do here would be like, Yes! Let's pray with her. Christ doesn't. He's not satisfied yet. 
She's asking for the water, though. Like, she wants what Christ has to offer. Isn't that good? Shouldn't we, like, give her a Bible and pat her on the back and say, now you're saved. Good job. It's not what Christ does. He's so different than us. And, and, And notice this. She's looking in the right place, but for the wrong reason. She says that I may not thirst nor come here to drink, to draw. You see, a lot of times we look at salvation as what's in it for me. That's what she said. If I have this everlasting spring of water, that means that I won't have to come out here in the heat of the day every day and hide my shame and uh, dig and uh, lower my bucket the whole way down and work hard. If I have this, then I won't need to work anymore. And that's how we look at salvation. If, I, if you'll only know Christ, he's going to take care of all your problems. No, he's not. If you only know Christ, you'll have everything that you think you need. <laughs> no, he's not. That's what she thought. You see, she had some major idols in her life. Get this. Christ does not share the throne The throne is not a tandem bike. It's not a dual seater. Christ's throne, he does not share with anything or anyone. To follow Christ is to worship Christ. To worship Christ is to worship him alone. He ignores her. Go call your husband and then come here. What? But right now, serious? Go call your husband and come here. And the woman said... Um, I don't got a husband. Jesus said, you have, notice he's gentle as he rebukes her. He's gentle as he points out the idol in her life that she does have, what she puts her trust in. You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you are with now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Lady, you've had five husbands, and you're living with your boyfriend. You see, I don't share the throne. You are worshiping men. And as, like we said before, you can tell what is false worship if it says more and more and more. And in her life, it said six times. This don't work, and this don't work, and this didn't satisfy, and that one didn't work, and this one left me, so I'm going to just live with this one. Jesus says no. That's not going to work either. Um, Before we can become a true worshiper, all false worship needs to be removed. Let me ask you a question. We're going to pick up this story next time we get together. But let me ask you this. If you were that person, woman or man, and you were sitting beside Jesus at the well, and Jesus offered you living water, Water that satisfies. And you said, give me some of this water. He would look at you and he would say, okay. But first, this has got to be removed. I wonder what it would be for you. What, um, what, what idol do you want to share the throne with Christ? I, I want Christ and I like salvation, but I don't want to give up this. Um, 
This kind of thing is spread the whole way throughout Scripture. Let me, let me give you some examples. Remember Nicodemus a couple weeks ago? What did Nicodemus worship? He was a worshiper. What did he worship? Worshipped status. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher. He was religious. A lot of you are just like this. Man, so many Christians fall into this worship of what I look like on the outside. I got to look good. I got to say the right thing. I got to be at the right place. I got to wear the right t-shirt, the right bracelet. I got to go to Sunday school and evening church. But if you're not drinking and loving the water that Christ gives of salvation, this is what Jesus said to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. For you are whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and uncleanliness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Some of you look so good on the outside. But on the inside, you're messed up. I know exactly what that's like to be like. To want to, to say the right things. But inside, man, there's, there's things that you're not going to give up. It's not true water. Not going to work. Do you remember uh, Mary and Martha? What did Martha worship? What did Martha worship? Yeah, she was a busy, busy person. Jesus is in her house, and she's doing the dishes because that's where she found meaning. Jesus is in her house, and she's vacuuming because that's where she finds enjoyment. She, she worships the idol of being busy. Okay, Don't equate busyness with godliness. Just because you're running around going to all the Bible studies and all the groups and you're busy and you're a worker doesn't mean you're, you're drinking from the living water. Some of you just need to stop going to so many places and spend time with the giver of living water, with Christ. We can get so busy with things that we don't spend any time with Christ. This is what Jesus said to her. And Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. All that busyness. Here's what's going to happen. Some of you, you're at Bible college, you're going to go home. You're going to be sitting there, and all of a sudden, all the busy, busy is going in the classes. Some of you at MSU, you go to all these Bible studies, and they're good. But if you're just running around being busy, it doesn't mean that you're drinking from the living. It doesn't mean that you have a relationship with Christ. It just means that you're busy. I understand, too, that as a student, you only have so much time. Your plate is only so big. And here's what happens. You've got a plate about this big. Exams come. 
and things start falling off the plate because of busyness, make sure that the things that really matter don't fall off the plate. Make sure you're spending time with the Lord. You're not just being busy. The rich young ruler, remember him? What did he worship? This is some of you too. What did he worship? Money. What else? Possessions. He, he, he put his trust in, in a job. He put his trust in a bank account, in a retirement fund. He put his trust in a, a certain degree. He put his trust in all of these things that Jesus said, you fool, don't you know that your life could be required of you tonight? All these things could be taken away from you like that. They're broken pots. They're not living water. This person has no perceptive of value. They think, if you're the rich young ruler type worshiper, you don't understand what true value is. And you're going to spend all your time heaping together these treasures, and someday they're just going to rust and leave you empty. Um, Do you remember the masses? The Jewish masses that hung around Jesus, what did they worship? What was it? Do you know? Food. Yeah. They hung around Jesus because they loved getting fed. They loved the things of the flesh, the sensations, the next whatever made them feel good. If Jesus is going to supply some food, I'm in. If he's going to do some really cool miracles, I'll watch. Some of you are like that. It's whatever meets that next need, that next desire, that next gut feeling. This is what I want to do. This is the next experience I want. This is what Paul said. For many of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. I'll read that again. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly whose glory is their shame, who sets their mind on earthly things. That's some of you. You got your mind set on earthly things, the things of the belly, food, satisfaction, excitement. Not living water, cracked pot. And the last one, the Samaritan woman. She worshipped relationships. She thought... If I just had the right guy. For some of you guys, it's just had a girlfriend. If I just was married. And here's what you're doing. You're looking at a guy or a girl as a savior. And you say, if I just had that guy, it would all be okay. If I just could marry that girl, I wouldn't feel this way. You're looking at them as a functional savior And you're going to make a very terrible person to be married to. Here's why. You're going to to go into a marriage, and you're going to put this person up on a pedestal that they should not be in. It's called a savior pedestal. It's called a I worship you pedestal. You were supposed to bring me happiness pedestal, and they're going to let you down in one week. Because your living water was in a person and not a relationship with the giver of true living water, Savior. Man, when you marry, go for godly. Look, at, if, you, 
let me explain myself. If you're marrying a person, or if you're attracted to a person who thinks that you are everything, you're going to disappoint them so fast. But if you're dating a person or if you're interested in a person and they are drinking from living waters, fruitful relationship. Because you're going to let them down. But my grace is sufficient. And Christ's salvation satisfies in areas that you cannot. We put these... um, expectations on people that they cannot bear. Only Christ can bear them. He, he, he is the only Savior that offers living water. They will not satisfy. John 10.10 10 says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. John 7.37, my last verse I read to you. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, if you're, if you're thirsty, if you, if you feel like you, you're not getting what you need and you're not, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Are you satisfied with life and all that it has to offer? I don't think you are. Maybe for a time. And maybe this talk will be for five years from now when all the things you're when you've graduated and you're in the real world and you're, you're like, what? Really? This is it? Yeah. Maybe this talks for them. But if you're not satisfied now, Christ says, come. Put your trust in me. Worship me. Worship me alone. To follow Christ is to worship Christ. To worship Christ is to worship him alone. Let's pray together. As we pray, I'm going to ask the guys to come on up. Lead us in one more set of music. Lord, I love you. I don't love you near enough. Pray, Lord, that uh, you would make yourself real to these folks tonight through the word that was spoken. That you would encourage anybody here who is dissatisfied with the meaningless of life to seek you out. Use some of us here as your mouthpiece, Lord. Lord, I thank you that your loving kindness is better than life. We can be satisfied past all of the things of this earth, Lord. We can have joy in the midst of trials, joy in the midst of pain, Lord. We can have a perspective, Lord, that is not limited to, to degrees and diplomas and things, Lord, but your, your joy surpasses that. It surpasses understanding. And it is only found, Lord, only found in you, the giver of salvation. It is only found in your Son, Lord. I thank you for your work on the cross, Lord. You have done the work. You have shown us great grace. I pray, Lord, that we would love love your grace, Lord. We would love you. In your name, amen.